0: Yep, let's dive in, okay. We're starting a brand new series here on the book of 2nd Corinthians, really excited about this. Um, if I were to sum up the book of 2nd Corinthians with a sound effect, and I know that's the analysis you all came for, <laughs> that sound effect would be this. <sighs> feels good, you guys wanna try it with me? Here, here we go, on three. One, Ha! <sighs> Feels good, eh? Feel a little bit relieved, a little bit relaxed. Do you feel any comfort? See, 2 Corinthians is a book all about the comfort that God provides for his people. It's a really passionate, profound letter, and it's really a personal letter written by the Apostle Paul. And so before we get too deep into our text today, which will be the first seven verses, I want to give us a background on the book of 2 Corinthians. It's important to see why this was written, who it was written to, what's happening in the city at this time. So the first obvious thing we have to realize is that this is 2 Corinthians. So that means there must be a 1 Corinthians. However, there's actually at least four letters that we know of that were written to the Corinthians. And bear with me here. The book of 1 Corinthians was actually the second letter sent to them. And our book of 2 Corinthians was the fourth letter sent to them, okay? The third letter, which we don't have manuscripts available to us today, but we know about it from the texts, the third letter was a really severe and harsh letter. Why? Well, if you studied 1 Corinthians, you'll know that Corinth was a wild place with a wild church in it. It would be like a hybrid of like Las Vegas, Miami, New York, all compiled into one place. Imagine being there. It was a place with a lot of immigrants, a place with no shortage of entertainment. They had a lot of different gods and spiritual things that they would worship. And in Paul's opinion, the church did not distinguish itself from culture around it, but rather tried to blend in with it and take part in all of the same things. We even know from 1 Corinthians that there were a lot of issues with which the church missed the mark. One of them being, like they would get drunk at the Lord's Supper. They would get drunk when taking communion. Do you know how many of those little communion cups under your seats you would need to get drunk? But that's how they treated the Lord's Supper. That's that's grape juice, by the way. People there were also teaching that the resurrection of Jesus was not a bodily resurrection. That's a big deal. People were sleeping with their family members. All kinds of darkness was occurring within that church. It was a divided, dysfunctional church that also had a major issue with the authority of God, particularly the authority God gave Paul to teach them. See, the church in Corinth, they they had Paul's letters and they looked at his letters and they were like, okay, this is a very well-written man. He's very literate, he has a lot of great wisdom, but when you actually meet this guy in person, he's really not that impressive. He's not charismatic. He's not that good looking. He doesn't have much outward success. He's not that great at public speaking. This guy's weak, and so the people in Corinth looked at all these aspects of Paul's life and they said, you know, there's a lot of other people who would do a way better job than Paul. They're way more spoken. They're they're way more charismatic. Yeah, they might have a bit of a different message that maybe is off a little bit, but they seem better suited to lead this church because of the success they've had in their lives. This guy, Paul, he's not that great. And you'll see in a few weeks when we get to chapters 10, 11, 13, Paul actually reminds the Corinthians of this criticism that they had for him. And so we know what they're thinking about Paul. They measured the man by his outward appearance and accomplishments and didn't accept the authority given to him by God because he didn't live up to their cultural standards. Have we done this? When we do that, sure, we run the same risk as the Corinthians do in overthrowing the word of God and instead decide for ourselves how the word of God should be presented to us and we adopt the word of man instead of the word of God. That's what's happening in Corinth. Paul addresses them on another issue in 1 Corinthians 4. See, they had the wrong idea of the benefits you get by following God. They thought, by following God, I would become rich, I would become famous, I would become powerful, I would have all of the pleasures this world can possibly give me, and because Paul didn't have any of these things, they rejected him and all of his teachings. And so this was the primary focus of the third letter, the one that's right before the one we're in today, We know it to be a very strong, severe, harsh letter and it comes not long after Paul makes a painfully difficult visit to this church in Corinth. He confronted them on these issues and he was so grieved and hurt by their disobedience and worldly opinions and their lifestyles that they had within the church that when he had to go check on them again, he wouldn't even go. He's like, I'm not going. Titus, you go check on him. And so he sends Titus to go check on the church again. And so when Titus goes, amazingly, he found some good news. The majority of the church had repented, turned away from that former life. Like, yeah, there was still a minority left who who didn't repent, and Paul's going to deal with them in 2 Corinthians, but the majority of the church repented. And so we jump now into 2 Corinthians, the fourth letter sent by Paul, after he's received this good news from Titus. And you'll notice as we get further into the book that that he commends them for this change. He's proud of them, but he's also very clearly still wounded by how they treated him. And he still strongly challenges their beliefs because they're dealing with a lot of false views still about what it means to follow God. And one of the views that they're still off on is the meaning and purpose of suffering, of difficulties, and missing the amazing gift of God's comfort in their lives. And this is where Paul is going to begin 2 Corinthians So if you will, if you have your Bibles, let's read the first seven verses together. It'll be on the screen as well. Here we go. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So the introduction of this letter really follows kind of ancient epistle form, like this is isn't is new how, how Paul is starting this, except there's a really unique distinction that he doesn't do here that he does in his other letters. Like in Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, even in 1st Corinthians, he starts off all of those letters by thanking the Lord for the people he's writing to. But what's interesting about this text is he doesn't start that way. And I have to wonder, is it because of all the reasons I mentioned previously? He still has some pain. He still has some heartache about the time he spent in Corinth. Remember, very recently they judged his authority given to him by God. This hasn't left Paul's mind as he begins writing this. And so here, rather than commending them and thanking God for them, like he he does in the other letters, he begins to thank God for what God has done in his life. Why? Well, because one, they haven't yet accepted the authority given by God to teach them, and two, they are not understanding the sufferings that he has gone through and why, and if they don't understand his sufferings, they aren't going to be able to understand their own. And I want us to notice this morning a few words in this text that are repeated again and again that make the first seven verses unique to the entire New Testament. Here's the first word affliction. We see that word used twice in verse four. You'll actually see it again in verse eight. This is a word used by Paul nine times in 2 Corinthians, but three of them are right here. The next word is suffering, that's used twice in verse six and again in verse seven. Paul uses this word nine times in all of his letters, probably most famously in Romans eight, when he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He uses suffering nine times in all of his letters, but three are right here. He clearly wants to make a point about suffering and affliction, because this is a huge issue for him, and the church in Corinth, and I have to wonder, is it a huge issue for us today? Anyone suffering at all? Anyone have any afflictions they're dealing with? Like It seems like they're everywhere. But we also find another word repeated, and this is our hope. The word is comfort we see this word 10 times within four verses. So Paul clearly wants to make a point here. Paul actually uses the word comfort 17 times in the entire book of 2 Corinthians. So if I were to give a quick word summary as to what 2 Corinthians is about, I would say it's about the comfort of God. And if I were to combine it with the other words, the comfort God provides for his people in their afflictions. Or in other words, (sighs) see Paul understands what they don't yet understand and we must understand this morning that there is a connection between suffering and comfort. And so to help us with that, I want us to notice three things about comfort and suffering this morning. Number one, that perfect comfort comes from God alone. Number two, God's comfort works. And number three, God comforts us so that we will comfort others. So number one, perfect comfort comes from God alone. Look with me at verse three. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He's saying right out of the gate, comfort comes from God. Now, there's many ways in which we in here can comfort one another, isn't there? Like we can say like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear what you're going through. That, that sounds really hard. Like that, that can be comforting. We can be like, hey, I can't believe you're going through that. I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna walk beside you every step of the way. Whatever you need, I'm here for you. That, that's comforting, right? But perfect comfort comes when we know with assurance that the problem is going to one day be resolved and no human being can assure assure you with that level of comfort only God can. So I appreciate any comfort that you have for me, of course. I appreciate any support you give me, any friendship you have for me, But, but ultimately, you cannot assure me that my afflictions are going to one day go away. Only God can do that because of what Jesus has done. And here's what Paul says comfort is about. He says not only do we come alongside each other, and we should, but we experience God himself coming alongside us. The Greek word for comfort is parakaleo. It literally translates to to come alongside So as we are struggling, God himself comes alongside us. And this tells us something about the purposes of our suffering and about the purposes of God's comforting in our life. See, if we were to look, take a higher view and look at the whole essence of God's cosmic eternal plan in the entirety of the universe, it is to display and portray the majestic, indescribable, amazing glory that he has. Like when you look at the beauty in this world, and that's easy to do in Vancouver, you look at the mountains, the oceans, the stars in the sky, the animals in the wilderness, things so amazing you can only see them under a microscope and you look at them and you wonder, how can these things even exist? They're so amazing. Those who are in Christ are led to understand that they are made by the hand of God and by the word of his mouth they came into being and everything that ever was and is are held together by his mouth. And so it is in our redemption and so it is in our salvation and so it is in our suffering. Understand that a primary purpose of your sufferings is that you are part of God's cosmic, eternal, redeeming plan, and God is displaying something about himself in the midst of your struggle. And, And do you see the purpose in which his comfort gives? Like, it's not simply that you would feel better by getting his comfort, though God, of course, delights in you feeling better, But that's not the ultimate purpose. The the ultimate purpose of his comfort is the same purpose that the universe has and that is to display the glory of God, his majesty, all of his attributes, particularly the comfort and love he has for his people. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, don't you understand that, that I, your apostle, your brother in Christ, an elder in the church, understand that when you see me persecuted, when you see me suffering, when you see me weighed down under the weight of the responsibilities God has given to me, when you see me in despair, don't you see that God is working out something in me to display himself to all? And don't you know that when he comforts me, whether it be through you, through the word of God, or by him walking alongside me, don't you see he's displaying his glory and love and care for his people? And that's the reason we feel the comfort of God and we can lift up our hands even in the midst of the worst seasons and we can sing, shout to the Lord, all the earth let us sing, power and majesty, praise to the king, because we're not alone. and as amazing of friends or family members that you might have in your life, no human being can be this level of comfort for you. Like, like yeah, we can offer ourselves to one another and we absolutely should. We can sympathize with one another. We can open our bank accounts to one another, open our homes to one another, love one another, But we have to go beyond that for one another and remind each other saying, sister, brother, God's hand is at work in your life. So know that when you you lose someone that you love dearly, when you lay awake in night in pain again and again, when every day feels like the world is against you, God has a purpose in this. And no matter what affliction you walk in, God has not, will not ever forget or abandon you. No, he is working all things together for your good and he's not letting you do it by yourself. Parakaleo, he's coming alongside you. And know that nothing happens to us in this life that doesn't first go through God's sovereign hands. So as hard as it might be to say praise God for for my suffering or praise God for my times of struggle or my pain, we say it because we are in the midst of God's glorious redeeming plan. And praise God for our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross on our behalf as the ultimate expression of God's love, kindness, comfort and hope for his people. And I want to point this out because this is my my favorite attribute about Jesus. Not only did Jesus die, but he lived a really hard life, didn't he? And it it doesn't really make sense if you think about it. Like, couldn't he have just been born, lived a pretty chill life, died on the cross, paid for our sins? Great. But Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 tells us that, He lived a really hard life and he endured all of the same suffering, pain, struggle, anxiety that you and I all feel so that when you're at home sitting on your couch under the weight of your sorrow, Jesus can come alongside you, sit next to you, put his arm around you and say, I know. I lost. I've been anxious to the point point of death. I was tempted by the enemy himself. I felt pain you can never imagine. Run to me, I will come alongside you and comfort you. So perfect comfort comes from God alone and ultimately the purpose of that comfort is to worship him, to give him glory. Number two, God's comfort works. Look with me at uh, verse four, pick it up in the end of verse three, just the start of verse four. It says, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, he comforts us in how many of our afflictions? All of them. Not a few, not every now and then when he feels like it, all of them. And that word all is important because it indicates that God's not just like, okay, this one, this one. He's not picking and choosing when and where he comforts, but rather in any trouble you could possibly imagine, no exceptions whatsoever, God's perfect comfort is there for you. Well, you might say the Corinthians didn't seem to think that it worked for them. Yeah, well, that's because they had a misunderstanding of the gospel and what it meant to follow Jesus. They wanted to give your life to Jesus, join a church, and boom, health, wealth, happiness, no more struggles. But Paul says, you completely misunderstand the life of a Christian. Like, do you realize the one who Christians follow The one they followed, he himself went to the cross in the most horrific act of suffering you could ever imagine being hung there, beaten and naked by nails in his hands and his feet while people mocked him. He even says to the follower of him, take up your cross and follow me. And here's how the comfort of God works. I see two ways for us this morning. First... We'll see, that we'll be in this verse next week, but I'll quickly get into it. Verse 10 says he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So one way his comfort works is that he will straight up deliver us, maybe even remove us from whatever suffering we're in. And for those of you in here who are Christians or have been for a number of years, you know this is true, like, how many seasons of struggle and pain have you been in where you can look back and say, the only way I got through that was God helping me? And if you're not a Christian in here and you don't believe this, I just encourage you, ask around this room. There's stories in here of God delivering people from their struggles. Like God has like, he's reconciled broken relationships, he's healed pain, he's lifted depression. Depression. But there's another way in which his comfort works and it's a way that the Corinthians forgot and I don't think it's a hot take for me to say that oftentimes we forget to. Here it is. Sometimes God comforts us by not resolving our problems in this life. Let me give you an example. In um, 2 Corinthians 12, we'll get into in just a second, Um, We'll be in this text in a few weeks. But we know that Paul was in a major season of struggle and affliction that he very clearly wanted to be rid of. He prayed to God, God, remove this from me. He says it was tormenting him. And I imagine keeping him awake night after night. And this comes not long after Paul visits a place called the third heaven where he communicates with Jesus face to face. Like, what an experience, But but look what he says about this in verse seven. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, so communicating with Jesus, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. And here we go, he's gonna ask for God to get rid of it. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me, Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you. So God responds to his plea, I'm not going to take this away from you, but I am going to give you my grace, and it will be enough. It will be a perfect comfort that works. He goes on, for my power is made perfect in weakness, And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sure, there is only one being in the entire universe that can do this for you that can offer you this kind of comfort, this kind of a hope, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it is sufficient and it works. But I know it's hard. Like, I don't know what you're going through right now. But I know it's harder than it is to say. But just know, like, in the midst of the most brutal physical pain, in the midst of sorrow, or persecution or just heavy, heavy anxiety, depression, situations which to the world seem absolutely hopeless, in those moments, Jesus Christ says, I am sufficient for you. My unmerited love, meaning you didn't have to do anything to deserve it. He just gave it to you because he loves you, as messy as you might be that love is sufficient for you. My presence is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And as you discover that he is enough, you will discover his overflowing love and comfort that he has for you. Only God can do this. And let me say sure, Because maybe you're thinking, well, like, should I not be praying for healing then or to be removed? No, I'm not saying that. The Bible is very clear that we should make our heartfelt desires known to God. But I want you to know this morning that God's perfect will on your life might be that he does not grant your request because he has a plan for you and ultimately he knows what's best for you. And like Paul, by keeping you weak, he knows you might be more likely to cling to him like he is your only lifeline, only source of hope and comfort because he is. And I can think of no greater example of this than Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll explain. Jesus is about to be arrested, like wrongfully arrested, and about to be led into the absolute worst day of suffering you could ever possibly imagine. He knows this is about to happen, just hours away. And so he goes up to the Garden of Gethsemane. He falls on his face. The Bible says he's anxious to the point where he is sweating blood. And he prays to the Father, Lord, I know what's about to happen. I know the pain I'm about to endure. If there's any other way, can we do it some other way? But then he says, and this is the greatest model for us on how we should pray, He says, but God, you know what's best. No matter what I go through, you're going to be with me. So if this is what you would have for me, not my will, your will be done. And then what happens? Well, he gets arrested. He gets wrongfully tried in court. And he endures just... The most brutal 18 or so hours you could imagine. He has the skin whipped off his back, his beard ripped out of his face, he's hit, he's spat on, insults are hurled at him, he's hung there on a cross with nails in his hands and his feet while they continue to mock him, while they shove toilet water in his mouth, while they drive a spear into his side, and did his prayers to God get him out of any of that? No, but it got him through it. And God was with him every step. And out of that, the most beautiful exchange, the most beautiful act of love in the history of the world occurred because God had a plan to use his sufferings for his good and his glory and he has a plan amidst yours as well he may not get you out of it. He will get you through it. And he will walk alongside you and comfort you every step of the way. His comfort works. So we've seen one, that perfect comfort comes from God alone. And two, that God's comfort works. And finally, God comforts us so that we will comfort others. Let's look at verse four. It says, The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So we already know that God uses our suffering and our affliction to bring glory to himself. But more than that, he uses it to call people to him, to lead people to to the gospel, to lead people to that comfort that we have. John Piper, in a book called Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ, he talks about the purposes of suffering in the Christian's life. Here's what he says. He says, Christ's suffering is for propitiation. That means Christ's suffering was to pay the penalty for sin. That's why Jesus suffered. Our suffering is for propagation, which is the action of spreading or promoting an idea, spreading the gospel. In other words, when we suffer with him, whether it be being on mission, persecution, physical ailment, depression, we do so to display the love Christ has for the world, to display the gospel. This is what it means to share in Christ's sufferings. Paul's missionary suffering is God's design to complete the sufferings of Christ by making them more visible and personal and precious to those for whom he died. And so I say this very sobering word. God's plan is that his saving purpose for the nations will triumph through the suffering of his people. And so what what Piper is saying in a sense is that there was only one generation alive that actually got to physically see Jesus live and die, right? And of that generation, only a small population actually lived where Jesus lived and were actually able to literally see him do life and then die. Only a small group of people actually saw the afflictions of Christ right up close, And so since that time, what Paul and Piper are saying is that our afflictions now, our suffering now, that we endure as believers, those are meant to be tangible sufferings that become more touchable for people around us. So that as we suffer as Christians, like Christ suffered in his life, people would be pointed to what Christ has accomplished. Because they weren't there when when he experienced it himself so they see it through us. And so our suffering and affliction in life, yes, it brings glory to God, but also it helps people understand the gospel and know Jesus. Because when they see believers going through something of great difficulty in life, yet have this peace about it, I'm not saying it's easy, but they have this weird, unshakable peace about it, it causes others to ask questions and wonder, who is this God they're following? And it goes back to what Jesus did in his own life. Like Jesus was a man who was very familiar with pain and suffering, wasn't he? But at the same time, He was peaceful. He was caring amidst his sufferings. He was kind amidst his persecution. He was loving. He was even willing to die and pay the penalty for sin for the very people that caused him the suffering. Let me me work this out a little bit more for us, how, how God uses our suffering for his glory and to draw people closer to him. Uh, In John chapter 9, we'll get there in just a second, Jesus and his disciples are walking down the road and they come across a blind man. And the disciples turn to Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, so who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? And that's why he's born blind. Do you you see the logic? It's kind of like this karma thing, which isn't a real biblical thing, but that's kind of the logic of our world, isn't it? That this is a really bad thing for this man to be blind. It's a heavy, difficult thing. Therefore, he must have sinned, or maybe it was his parents, and that's why God is punishing him. But look how Jesus responds to that. In John 9, verse 3, it's remarkable. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but why? but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so what Jesus says in this moment is it doesn't have anything to do with this man's sin or his parents' sin, but rather this man was born blind so at this very moment in history as we are walking by I would be glorified and you would know who I truly am because in just a few moments in this chapter, Jesus is going to heal him, he's going to restore his sight and the disciples would see who Jesus actually was. They would see that he's the son of God with all power And so Jesus was glorified in this man's weakness and what this man would have been hearing for the very first time is that this thing in his life that burdened him, that he thought was his fault, it was actually entrusted to him by God alone for this very moment so that many would be pointed to Jesus. And for some of us here today, this is all you need to hear that your suffering and your affliction and the difficulties you are walking in is not God punishing you. It is not God rubbing your face in your sin. It is not God holding a grudge for decisions you made years ago. Remember, if you are in Christ, if you are a child of God, Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for you. That's the gospel. Jesus already paid all of the punishment, so you cannot keep paying for it. And if he paid for it on the cross, it's done. It's finished. Instead, what we find in this passage and in our lives is that God will give particular difficulties, particular sufferings, particular afflictions, so that he might use them to bring glory to his name and to point many others to him. And parakaleo, he'll walk alongside you every step of the way. I'm gonna finish by reading a poem by Reverend Dean Beatty called Blessed Comfort. It says, Oh, what a blessed comfort that God makes no mistakes. Though trials lead to sorrows, his own he'll not forsake. Recall he is the righteous judge. He always will do right. Though now there may be storm clouds, the future will be bright. He has a plan and purpose, though hidden from our view. By faith, we trust his wisdom that he will see us through. The paths of earth we walk today are tainted by the fall, but these will leave behind us when we hear God's final call. Paths of faith are sometimes hard. We long to see ahead, but if we let the Savior lead, we'll never be misled. Returning to the comfort that God makes no mistakes. We trust his plan and purpose that our good he'll undertake. (sighs) Let's pray. So God, we just give you all glory this morning. We just thank you for the reminder that you have not, will not, ever abandon us. And I really pray for my brothers and sisters in here this morning who are in seasons of suffering and affliction right now. I pray that they would know with assurance that you are beside them. You are their great, perfect comfort that is walking with them every step of the way and you are accomplishing something in the suffering that they're in. We pray that we would trust this more. We pray that we would remember the cross and not be quick to think that you've turned your back on us or you're punishing us, but no, you've paid for all of that already and maybe there's something bigger happening in our struggle. And so, Lord, I just pray for courage for my brothers and sisters right now. If anyone feels like they are walking in this alone, I pray that they would just humbly pray to you this morning. Ask someone for prayer. Ask for you to come alongside them that they might feel your presence with them. Help us, God. We need you. We love you. And it's for your name we pray. Amen.